Tired of the old spins? Welcome to the Anders of John Show, your refuge from mainstream media spin. Here we dissect fake news and expose the real stories. Don't just listen, engage. Sign up for our newsletter right now. Click the link in the description. Together we can change the way we consume news, challenge the narrative, and seek the truth. The Anders of John Show, because the truth matters. Now let's get into today's topic. Uh, anyway, I wanted to close out this series on Russian intelligence with why the Russians seem to be significantly weaker than we would have expected them to be. Because after all, this was one of the countries that arguably had the best human intelligence collection system in the world. I think it's worth uh, first exploring why I say that. <laughs> um, the Russian geography is not like the American. So the United States has great coasts, great waterways, great land. It's easy to develop. It's easy to expand. And so when we want to do human intelligence, you have to take somebody out of that environment and then put them in another one. And since the United States is a very large country, even though we are multicultural, it's not like we have a lot of experience in, this is going to sound really horrible, uh, infiltrating and conquering other peoples. I mean, yes, 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 you can make the case for the Native Americans, um, you know, a century ago or more. But this isn't something that's kind of built into our society. Whereas the Russian system is very, very different. Uh, Moscow, Muscovoy originally, was a relatively small chunk of land with not great capital generation or agricultural opportunities. And it had no natural barriers like the United States has with its border with Mexico or Canada, much less the rest of the world. And so they had to go out and conquer everyone that they bordered. And all that did was give them territory that they had to occupy and no borders that were decent. So they went and conquered everyone around that group too. And they kept expanding, expanding, expanding until they reached a series of geographic barriers like the Caucasus Mountains um, or the Baltic Sea that either halted their expansion or even better, provided a physical barrier from anyone else coming in. And anyone who has been following me on Ukraine, you know, this is kind of my core reason why I think the Russians will never back down and why this war was always inevitable. Anyway, this leaves the Russians uh, with dozens of ethnicities that they have conquered and are literally using as cannon fodder. And since pretty much no one on the planet has grown up saying, oh, I want to be cannon fodder later, uh, you have to find a way to induce their cooperation. You can't make them part of the leadership because they're conquered peoples and you don't want them going their own way. So you basically shoot through the entire system with intelligence operatives. So the Russians, from the beginning, hundreds of years ago, have become experts at planting their people in other populations that may be hostile to Russian interests and collecting information and recruiting dissidents and basically turning the population against one another. And in doing that, they built up a skill set that dealt that uh, served them very well in the Soviet period. And the Soviets basically dusted off the Russian strategy and applied it to the world writ large, not just to the Soviet bloc countries or their occupied territories or folks within the Soviet Union itself. And that meant that by the time we got to 1989, the Soviet system had the richest human intelligence gathering network uh, in human history. But then the Soviet system collapsed. And just as everything else got weaker, same thing here. Uh, if you don't pay your spies, they probably aren't going to spy as well. Uh, there was also a problem with leadership, especially after the year 2000. There was also a big problem with the numbers that they had. So a lot of intelligence operatives after the Cold War ended went into business for themselves and got into drug running and worked for cartels and worked for people smuggling or worked with the Taliban. They basically forswear uh, king country or, or czar in country and went into business and use their skill set for criminal enterprises. And that continues to be a problem today. Uh, second, more importantly, is that Putin 
drew a lot of his support from people who were part of the human network, specifically on the training and the leadership side, and brought them into his coalition to run the government after he became president in 2000. Well, most of these people, like, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity to get rich. And so they got out of the business of manning the intel networks and got into the business of government. And these are the, the silovarks, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, the siloviki are the strongmen, the military intelligence folks who run the system. The oligarchs are the people who run business, and the silovarks are the people who have a foot in both worlds. Probably the most famous silovark is a guy by the name of Igor Sechin, who runs Rosneft, which is Russia's national oil monopoly. Anyway, so the Russians have lost most of their operatives abroad because they stopped paying them in the 90s, and they've lost most of their trainers at home because they went into the business of government with Putin, and that has left a bit of a shell of a system. Now, they're still good because that system to train these people still exists to a degree, but it had to become a lot more focused. And they became very sensitive. The Russians became very sensitive to losing their operatives. They try to use them in places where they could have cover uh, that was as dense as possible. We're going to unpack something that caught my attention, a recent analysis by Peter Sihan. Sihan argues that Russian intelligence capabilities are weaker than expected. Now, the narrative we're usually spoon-fed is that Russia is this unbeatable espionage behemoth. But, as Sihan points out, the reality may be significantly different. And I find it intriguing. Why? Because it's a departure from the narrative. And if there's anything I love, it's challenging the narrative. According to Sihan, Russia's geography and its history of conquest shaped its human intelligence collection system. This is an important aspect to understand. Russia is a vast country stretching across 11 time zones with a history replete with territorial conquests and defensive wars. It's a nation that has always had to keep a vigilant eye on its borders. It's only logical that they've developed an intelligence system focusing on human intel. However, the fall of the Soviet Union, a cataclysmic event in world history, had a seismic impact on Russian intelligence. Lack of funding, loss of operatives to criminal enterprise, prices and leadership changes have all played a part in the weakening of their intelligence apparatus. In a sense, the mighty Russian bear has been wounded, not by an external adversary, but by its own internal turmoil. Then came the recent conflicts and diplomatic expulsions, which have further damaged Russia's intelligence apparatus. As Siam puts it, Russia is now overly reliant on deep cover agents who, quite frankly, are not cut out for basic intelligence gathering. And this is where it gets interesting. We often hear about Russian misinformation campaigns campaigns. Those are still very much a threat. But as per Sihan's argument, the structural blows to their intelligence capabilities have been significant. And these aren't things you can simply recover from overnight. It requires time, resources, and a focused strategy. So what we're looking at here is a different narrative. One that tells us that the Russian intelligence apparatus, while still formidable, isn't quite the omnipotent force it's often made out to be. It's a narrative that encourages us to question and reevaluate our understanding of global power dynamics. Remember, narratives serve an agenda, and when we challenge these narratives, we challenge the agenda. Now, this doesn't mean we underestimate Russia or ignore the threat of misinformation, but it does mean we should approach this subject with nuance, with a willingness to delve deeper and see the complexities at play. When we talk about Russian intelligence, we also have to consider the context of cyber warfare. It's a brave new world out there, folks, one where battles aren't just fought on physical ground, but in the realm of ones and zeros. Cyber attacks, deepfakes, 
Ransomware, these aren't terms from a science fiction novel. They're the weapons of the modern age. But again, let's apply science analysis here. He suggests that while Russia is often seen as a cyber powerhouse, the reality might be less intimidating. Yes, they have the capacity to disrupt and cause chaos, but as we've seen, even their traditional human intelligence has taken a significant hit. Could their cyber capabilities be overestimated as well? Could it be possible that what we're witnessing is more about sowing discord and amplifying fear rather than displaying genuine, dominant cyber prowess? Science seems to suggest so, and it's certainly food for thought. As we've seen in the past, fear is a potent tool. It's a mechanism of control, a way to keep us on our toes. But if we let fear cloud our judgment, we risk overlooking the nuances, the subtleties, the cracks in the narrative. And that's precisely where the truth often resides. We must remember that narratives are like maps. They simplify complex realities, giving us a digestible version of the world. But just like maps, they can also distort, exaggerate, or even omit critical information. What science analysis does is it challenges us to look beyond the map, to question its accuracy, to seek the true contours of the landscape. As we navigate this complex geopolitical terrain, let's commit to challenging narratives, to seeking truth, and to understanding that the world is rarely as black and white as it's often portrayed. This quest for understanding is, after all, what brings us together in conversation. It's what fuels our shared pursuit of knowledge and truth. It's the essence of a free-thinking, open society. As we continue this conversation, let's remember the real-world implications of our discussions. We're not just talking about abstract concepts here. We're discussing the realities that shape our world, our security, our future. When it comes to Russian intelligence, it's easy to get caught up in the Cold War era imagery of spy thrillers. But the truth is far more nuanced and, in many ways, more fascinating. The image of the Russian bear might not be as fearsome as it once was, but that doesn't mean we should disregard it. The bear is still there, maybe wounded, maybe weakened, but it's still a bear. Science analysis is not a call for complacency. Rather, it's a wake-up call to take a closer look, to reevaluate our preconceptions. We're dealing with a complex, evolving landscape, and our understanding must evolve with it. Let's not forget that while we're discussing the decline in Russian intelligence capabilities, Russia is still a global player with a significant influence. This information remains a potent weapon, and it's one that can cause as much damage as any traditional form of warfare. So, as we move forward, let's keep our eyes wide open. Let's seek the truth but also respect the complexity of the world we live in. And remember, free societies thrive on open dialogue, on questioning, on the relentless pursuit of truth. This is the end of the Syrian war. I mean, if you want to put your finger on the date when the Syrian war ended, this decision confirms it. Um, there is no real fighting any longer going on in Syria. There are certain areas of Syria which are still outside the Syrian government's control but they are not controlled by insurgencies that are fighting the Syrian government. They are occupied, they're territories that are occupied by outsiders, by the Turks in the north and by the United States in the east. Now, the Turks are trying to disengage. They're trying to find ways of extricating themselves and leaving these territories and doing a deal with Damascus in order to achieve that. So that part of the war is going to end very soon. That only leaves the American-occupied territories in the east, which, straightforwardly, it's now just a question of the US being there. It's no longer, as I said, part of any kind of civil war. That is finished. Assad won. He survived. He survived with the help of the Russians and the Iranians. 
he came very close at one point to losing. He never panicked. He never fled. He never lost his cool. Apparently, there were moments when the insurgents were just a, hundred, a couple of hundred meters from his palace, his residence, but he never left. He saw it out and he's won. And he's now reintegrated fully into the Arab League, the Arab family of nations. He's now once again best friends with, his, with the Saudis and all those. So he is the big winner in the Syrian war. The other big winner, of course, is Russia and, of course, Iran. And, of course, the Iranians now have their rapprochement with the Saudis going. And the Saudis have seen the way this has all worked out with Assad winning in the way that he did win. And they've changed their alignments. They've decided that they're going to distance themselves from the US. They're going to go with the Chinese and the Russians. They're going to rebuild their relations with Iran. They're going to seek peace with their neighbors. They're no longer prepared to work with the US in the way that they did. We've discussed that side of things extensively in our programs. But this decision to readmit Syria into the Arab League, which could not have happened without the agreement of the Saudis, that is conclusive. That seals both the fact that the Syrian war is over and that Assad has won and the realignment of Saudi Arabia away from the United States. Yeah, he, uh, he always uh, kept his cool. He never wore sweatshirts and green camouflage. He, uh, he would make uh, public appearances with, uh, with a suit and tie. Uh, there were no green screens. There were no big media productions. Um, the people, I think the Syrian people, I think it's fair to say they never turned on Assad either, even though they faced immense pressure as well to, uh, to turn on, on Assad. They stuck with it as well, and, and they showed that, uh, that they're not going to be intimidated either. I yes. mean, is that a fair assessment to make as well? It is, it is a completely fair assessment. I mean, he never lost his hold over the Syrian, uh, over the Syrian people. On the contrary, the war consolidated his leadership of Syria. He, he has been seen by the Syrian people as the symbol of their struggle <laughs> against, um, you know, the forces that were trying to overthrow him, which were backed by external powers. And it, it's ended up by making his position in Syria much stronger than it had been before. Now, in saying all of this, it's important to, says, to stress again that the war that happened in Syria had both external actors and internal causes. I mean, you know, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that there were many problems inside Syria. You can't start a war like this unless there were problems within Syria itself. And there clearly were. And we'll see how and whether Assad is able to address them in the long term. But over the course of the war, his leadership has greatly consolidated he came to be seen uh, by the Syrian people, particularly the Syrian people in the cities, 
Yes, the country that's been on the front line of a conflict that's lasted longer than a decade has finally seen the light at the end of the tunnel. In a move that's caused quite a stir in the international community, Syria's been remitted to the Arab League. Now, let's put it in context. The Biden White House isn't happy about this. Why? Well, because it means their aim of dismantling Syria's alliance with Iran and realigning the Middle East hasn't quite worked out. But this isn't just about the US, it's about the entire region. The chessboard of Middle Eastern politics is undergoing a major reshuffle. Let's take a look at the players. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, once on the brink of being ousted, has somehow managed to keep his seat thanks to Russia and Iran. Now, it's no secret that I'm not a fan of dictators. But here's the thing, Assad's victory also signifies a victory for Russia and Iran, two countries that have been a thorn in the side of the West for years. But there's another shift that's more surprising. Saudi Arabia, traditionally a strong ally of the US, is changing its alliances. They're moving away from us, cozying up to Iran and strengthening ties with Russia and China. This shift, folks, has contributed to Syria's reintegration into the Arab League. So, what's going on? What does this mean for us, for the Middle East, and for global politics? I'm just a guy with a talk show, but I can tell you this. The US's efforts to break the Syrian-Iranian alliance and reshape the Middle East have clearly backfired. Instead of achieving its intended results, we're seeing a strengthening of the alliances we were trying to break. Yes, it's disheartening, but it's also an opportunity for for us to reconsider our approach. Perhaps it's time to stop playing puppeteer in other nations' affairs and start fostering dialogue, communication and collaboration. This isn't about conceding defeat. It's about learning from our mistakes and seeking peaceful solutions. Because in the end, isn't that what we all want? Let's remember, when nations war, it's the people who suffer. And after more than a decade, the people of Syria deserve a break. Let's delve deeper, folks. The Middle East has long been a region of strategic importance, not just for the United States but for global powers like Russia and China. It's a complex web of alliances, rivalries and interests that's been playing out over decades. What we're seeing now with the readmission of Syria into the Arab League, with Saudi Arabia's changing alliances and with the survival of the Assad regime is a shift in the balance of power. And that's something we in the West need to come to terms with. The days when America could dictate the course of the Middle East are fading. Instead, we're seeing a multipolar world where nations like China and Russia are exerting their influence. And in the case of Syria, that influence has led to a victory for Assad and his allies. The question then becomes, how do we navigate this new landscape? Do we stick to our old strategies or do we adapt? I'm inclined towards adaptation. Folks, the world is changing and our approach needs to change with it. That doesn't mean giving up our principles or our interests, but it does mean being flexible, being open to dialogue and understanding that our way isn't the only way. It means recognizing the sovereignty of nations, even those we disagree with. With. It means fostering peace through diplomacy and mutual respect, not through force and coercion. It's not an easy road, but it's a necessary one. Because the alternative, as we've seen in Syria, is a long, destructive war that leaves no one better off. So let's take this as a wake-up call, a chance to rethink, to reevaluate, and to redefine our role in the world. And in doing so, let's strive for a world that's more peaceful, more respectful, and more just. I want you to imagine something. Picture a Middle East where we're not constantly at odds with Iran or Syria, where we're not incessantly involved in power struggles. Instead, imagine us as partners in dialogue, seeking to create a stable, prosperous region together. That's not a utopian fantasy, folks. It's
it's a real possibility if we're willing to make some changes. Number one, we need to start viewing these nations as equals, not as pawns in a geopolitical game. They have their own interests, their own cultures, and their own political dynamics that we need to respect. Second, we need to focus on diplomacy, not intervention. As the old saying goes, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And finally, we need to be ready to listen, learn, and adapt. The world doesn't revolve around us, and it's high time we recognize that. The events in Syria are a stark reminder of the complexities of global politics. It's not about who's right or wrong. It's about understanding, adapting, and working towards a peaceful solution. And I believe we can do it. It's never too late to change course, to learn from our mistakes, and to strive for a better, more peaceful world. Click the video on screen to stay updated and fight the free people's movement. Click this video now to stay updated. And thus far we haven't seen any show up. That doesn't mean they haven't been moved into the United States if Americans were killed. We just don't know. And the mainstream media, as you point out, is, is very, very complicit in trying to present a picture that they hope will maintain support for Ukraine. But the truth is, Ukraine is losing badly. And I think there, there have been a number of interviews recently that confirm it. You've had the Polish chief of staff, who has made it abundantly clear that Poland does not have the ammunition on hand to sustain any offensive operation against the Russians, and frankly argues that their stores of ammunition have been vastly depleted by the Ukrainians. That's number one. Number two, that he's repeatedly said the Russians are quite competent. Their soldiers are excellent, and very tough, trying to sort of dispel this false notion that's been so prevalent in the Western media that Russians are incompetent, stupid, slow, no initiative, and so forth. There's no evidence for that. And then finally, you have all of this bluster coming out of Prigozhin, who runs the 40,000-man uh, Wagner group. And he periodically makes statements, and it upsets people. Uh, I think Prigozhin, and this is based on my sources that tell me he has aspirations to run for office in Russia after the war is over, so he seems to bloviate whenever the opportunity presents itself. The, the fact that uh, Putin tolerates it uh, and suggests that maybe he finds Prigozhin useful insofar as Prigozhin periodically embarrasses army generals or offends them. You know, President Putin has made a couple of important visits to the front down in the south and up in Belarusia. And I think he's very anxious to get this offensive off the ground as soon as the ground is dry. And so if Prigozhin says, well, you know, these the troops that are on my left or general, whatever his name is, isn't moving fast enough. I think Putin may regard that as potentially useful to spur action on the Russian side. Incidentally, uh, the chief of logistics on in the Russian army, whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, was just relieved of his duties. And the word is that the FSB discovered that he was effectively stealing and trying to resell engines for the T-14 Armada tank series. Now, why the man would have done such a thing is beyond my imagination. I mean, there's corruption everywhere at some point in time in Russia. We know that. But it also suggests that they have known this for some time, and they chose now as the point to reveal it. So I think perhaps uh, Putin and the commander-in-chief Garazimov were both fed up with uh, the performance of the logistics commander. So they, they got rid of him. That's a good thing. It's always healthy when you remove senior officers. This is something we don't understand. When you when Two things that happen in military affairs that 
that really make soldiers happy. First of all, if a general goes out and is killed or wounded, everybody will say, well, why would the soldiers be happy about that? The reason is very simple. The general is with them. He's at the front. He's demonstrating that he shares the danger with them. So the Russian generals, we've had many of them killed. People act in the West as though this is something disastrous. No, it isn't. 